Passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance from superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has got you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Welcome to another edition of the Ots and Audibles podcast, Mailbag Edition. It's a Wednesday. That means Eric Scopel and I, Matt Preem, we get on on the mics and we answer you, the Duck fan, your biggest questions. At least I'm assuming you're a Duck fan. I don't know why you would be a to a, a podcast directly about Oregon athletics and then be sending in questions about that if you weren't. So uh, if you're not, thanks for listening. Uh, but hopefully you are a Duck fan listening to this podcast. Eric, another Wednesday, uh, exciting week because we've got a football game at home on prime time against a team that's got a very good defense, banged up offense, but nonetheless, an exciting time this week, Oregon Cal. And we've got a lot of questions, I think, about this game in, in particular. We do have a, quite a few questions, and, and most of them still are, are surrounding the Oregon running game or issues in that, so we'll, we'll get to that in a second here. We should mention uh, for the podcast listeners that we do have some clarity now that Chase Garbers is out uh, for this weekend's game. Uh, Cal quarterback suffered an injury. Uh, that certainly is, A, disappointing in terms of just the matchup, uh, and, B, potentially kind of outcome altering. I think Oregon still probably would have won this game. I, you know, I certainly would have believed that regardless of Garber's availability, but um, the step down to Devin Monster was pretty significant last game. We'll see what changes when he has a full week of practice, I guess, as the starter, but certainly kind of uh, impacts sort of the general, I guess, attention around this game of Cal beating Arizona State. You know, I, I think if Garber's had played, that game could have gone differently, um, and we might be talking about this game Quite a bit differently, I guess the excitement and attention surrounding it would be different as well. But instead, here we are, and, uh, you know, uh, that's just unfortunately the nature of the beast. So unless you had anything else, Matt, I'll jump in with the first question. Yeah, go for it. All right, number first question comes from Sabin Brob. What impact do you expect Micah Pittman and Brendan Schooler to have on the Cal game? Um, for those who maybe haven't read the reports, uh, Mario Cristobal said on Monday he was feeling pretty good about the chance of having both of those players available um, against Cal this weekend, Pittman sounds like is is full go. Uh, practicing Schooler was getting close to that point. Um, sounds like a lot of optimism they'll both play. If they do both play, Matt, I, I'll let, I guess I'll let you feel this one to start. What, what, what kind of impact do you expect from both of those players? I think with Pittman, um, he brings probably more of. I'm fighting off a cough, trying to not cough here. Uh, Pittman comes in and I think he, he gives you the speed over the top, stretches the field vertically. Um, we've seen that a little bit with Oregon's passing game. A lot of their big plays vertically though have come from scheme design, which is a tip right. of the hat to the, to the coaching staff. Um, and no offense to the players, but I don't think there's really anyone out there that <coughs> has this, you know, breakaway speed, elite speed that a guy like Pittman does. Um, Jalen Red's probably the closest guy to that. Uh, but Breland, 
Johnny Johnson, Addison, Delgado. <coughs> Man, we're both fighting off coughs here. Uh, our, our two guys that are, you know, those are guys that they, they beat you by good route running and by good scheme. And so Pittman presents the opportunity where all of a sudden now you've got a guy that can take the lid off the top and can just go deep and give you that speed. But he's also, you know, a really good sure-handed receiver. At least he wasn't in, in practice. Um, Schooler is going to be more of a possession receiver, kind of a jump ball threat in the red zone. Uh, a guy that knows the ins and outs of the offense, a guy that's going to be probably your best perimeter blocker at the receiver position. Um, so you get improvements there, but I don't think it's, it's safe and fair to come out and say that either guy is going to come out and all of a sudden have 10 catches for 115 yards and two touchdowns. Like I, they might come out and one of them might ca- catch a couple balls, but at the same time, I don't think either of them are going to come out and just all of a sudden just dominate and be the team's best receiver week one. They might get there eventually, but they've been off for six weeks of, uh, you know, five weeks of, of game week plus three to, to four weeks of, of fall camp. Yeah, I think you have to keep your expectations sort of limited um, in terms of like just the general upside, I, I do I do think Pittman has the talent to be the best or one of the two or three best receivers on this team once he's fully rounded into shape. We you know it, you know honestly in fall it kind of sounded like he was maybe the best or close to the top guy. Yeah. Um. And, and before injury, so he, you know somebody to be excited about. I think Matt's right in terms of just kind of tempering the expectations. Who knows? He might come out and have an incredible game. He might catch a touchdown. He might, you know, show a bunch of stuff that we saw during fall camp. But I think that's a lot to expect in his first uh, first game. And we, I think we're all pretty familiar with Schooler, uh, you know, in terms of what he brings. I expect him to play a fair amount. Um, again, I think that what's going to be interesting to see is kind of what happens to this receiver rotation now that they're starting to get some of these guys back in the mix because does, do we see a little bit less of Jalen Red because Pittman plays in the slot? At least that's where he's listed on the two deep. Um, for, with Schooler, do we see a little bit less of maybe Brian Addison? Um, what's kind of the, the mix of, of kind of guys coming in and out of the rotation? And, and that actually to me could be almost more of the, the bigger impact of the game than, than these two guys actually making catches and, and making plays. And I do expect that they, we will see if they're both cleared to play that they'll be on the field and, and maybe we'll see them both catch a pass or two. And maybe Micah Pittman's case will catch a couple more, more than a pass or two. But, um, I think the bigger impact is, is almost following which guys maybe play a little bit less because of those guys' returns? Because I do think there will have to be, you know, some sort of some sort of alteration to the rotation, and um, a lot of that I think will depend upon how well those two guys perform. Because again, I still think Micah Pittman's ceiling as a as a wide receiver on this team is just, is probably higher than just about anybody on the roster. I think maybe Johnny Johnson, though he's performed to start this season, um, is is hard for Pittman to catch. But man, what we saw. At times, uh, you know, prior to the season starting, you know, in practices, uh, was mighty impressive from him and a player to certainly, I think, be excited about. And, and, and it would be I think, great that he gets to start his season at home um, at Autzen Stadium and I think an opportunity maybe to see him do some special stuff. But, again, I think you have to be kind of temper those expectations and not expect, like Matt says, for him to go out and put up video game type numbers. I think that's a lot to ask, especially against, again, a good Cal defense that has one of the better secondaries in the Pac-12. One other thing is that it it will allow Oregon's receivers 
to play harder and short, mm-hmm. you know, guys don't have to worry about conserving their tanks as much because now all of a sudden you add two more receivers into the rotation. We're just assuming Jawan Johnson's not going to play. Um, but Oregon's basically operated with Jalen Red, Johnny Johnson, Brian Addison, Josh Delgado as your receivers. Am I missing anybody? Daywood Davis. Daywood Davis a, a little bit. Um, yeah. I mean, and you could say Spencer Webb, but I'm not going to because he's those those are the four guys that are out there on a regular basis. Daywood Davis has got in a little bit. Spencer Webb's got in a little bit. But now all of a sudden you're going to more than likely add two receivers that will be able to play, you know, 25% of the game, 30% of the game, and that allows the other four guys to not have to worry about conserving their energy for the fourth quarter because it's just those four. That in and of itself is a big adjustment. And, you know, guys get tired, guys get cramps in the fourth, and, you know, late in games, especially when it's hot. Now we're, we're in Eugene this week and it's not going to be in the nineties like it was at Stanford, but, you know, the addition of two more guys into the fold is, is just going to help guys just stay fresher, which allows them to make more plays, which allows the offense to be better. We should mention Cristobal even um, acknowledged the fact that they were able to, in practice, do things a little bit differently with some more bodies coming back. So um, I think that's, that is a, a good point to bring up, that just from a pure depth perspective, even if you remove those two's individual impact, it has to help. Just having a couple extra bodies out there, um, it's actually something that we probably almost overlooked a little bit, even though we talked a lot about the wide receiver situation, but just how impressive it is for those guys to run as many routes as they do with as, as uh, I guess, few breaks as they were getting. Um, uh, now they have an opportunity to, to, to uh, yeah, to write, to, to possibly relax a little bit, to not have to play every single snap. Question two from at ClearDuck. Seeing how successful Jaden Daniels and other quarterbacks have rushed against California, do you think Herbert will at least attempt to tuck it and rush once a run, running lane presents itself? I'll start here by saying, okay, Jaden Daniels had 12 carries for 84 yards. Um, in that win over a cow. That's impressive. I will also say that I watched that game and I saw Chase Garbers try to run, and the reason he's not playing or available for potentially a couple weeks here for cow, maybe longer than that, is because he took off running and landed. I know it wasn't, uh, he didn't get clobbered, but he still hurt his collarbone because he took off running. And, and I know that's, maybe again, I'm just overprotective on this, but I, I just think you've got to be very careful with quarterback play. Like, you look in the conference right now, like, there's a ton of quarterbacks who are good quarterbacks, like KJ Costello at Stanford's hurt. USC has like three quarterbacks hurt. Um, I think Dorian Thompson-Robinson got dinged up. Khalil Tate didn't play at all against UCLA. Um, you just, when you have a quarterback as good as Justin Herbert, to me, you have to protect him. And I would still say be very, very cautious with running him. At the same time, I think it is a good point that Jaden Daniels, against this defense, ran the ball pretty effect- effectively. I think Jaden Daniels is also uh, a a different athlete than than Justin Herbert is. You made a great comparison comparing him to Dennis Dixon uh on the site during during the weekend and Jaden Daniels. And I I completely agree with that. You know, both guys were really long, both guys came in a little bit raw, you know, but you can see the talent in Jaden Daniels. Um I I think they should there's two things here. Okay, if if you're not going to give Justin Herbert 
the option to run the football. And maybe he does, and he's just choosing not to do it. We don't know. Sure, sure that's possible. But if, if you're going to run the zone read, and every single time Herbert is going to give it, there's no reason for the defense to, to honor the, the, the threat of Herbert keeping the football and thus doing the zone read in of itself is, is pointless. It doesn't do anything because you're running a fake that no one believes you're going to run. And so you need to make the decision. Okay. If we're going to run the zone read, Justin needs to either keep it a couple times. That way we force defenses to honor the zone you know, the QB keeper aspect of it, or do away with the zone read and just run a straight dive. Cause it's a wasted motion. It's a wasted, you know, split second, what have you, which is just more time for the defense to react and rally to the football. So you need to make that decision of, do we need to run Justin Herbert? I think you do. But like you said, you also have to be very cautious of it. And very conscious of the, the amount of contact that Herbert takes because the worst thing you'll have is he ro- rolls out there, gets hit, breaks something, gets injured. And all of a sudden the fan base is going to be, you know, banging down the door of well, why was Herbert running the football? That wasn't smart. So it, it's kind of one of those catch 22s, damned if you do, damned if you don't type situations. Um, I think more realistically, I'd be, I, if I'm Oregon, I'm more worried about figuring out just how can we design plays and, and execute those plays correctly so that we don't have to have the worry of Justin Herbert having to run the football or not. How can we establish the run game without relying on Herbert to help move the, the ball on the ground? I, th- I think that's a great point. It, is it? Let's not make the solution Justin Herbert – running the football. Let's make the solution finding other ways to be successful running the football. And, um, again, I think this week will be telling. I'm looking at the stats against Arizona State. Arizona State ran the ball 48 times for 190 yards. It's a lot of run plays with about a four-yard average, which is okay. But that right there is a sign of a team that, in Cal's defense, that did a pretty good job of stopping Arizona State's run attack. And Eno Benjamin – might be the running back that's the most talented in this conference right now, and they held him to 100 yards on 29 carries. That's about a three-and-a-half-yard average. That's about what uh, C.J. Burdell did against Stanford. Actually, pretty similar stats in general there. Um, this is not going to be easy to run against this Cal defense. They've shown it time and time again. Evan Weaver in that middle of that defense, I, I, you're going to hear his name a lot. He makes a ton of plays. Um, Oregon is going to be challenged running the football in this game, and – if I'm the, the coaching staff, I'm not putting Justin Herbert in position to possibly get whacked. We should mention it was against the same Cal defense a couple of years ago that he got hurt running in for a touchdown at Autzen Stadium. I'm not putting him in a position to get whacked where you possibly maybe, – maybe him running it a couple times is the difference in this game, but it ends up costing you games down the line because you don't have your quarterback. Look, I, I, I think – We've seen this under Oregon football, under Mario Cristobal, when look, th- this team is, has for now two weeks taken a ton of criticism. Their Stanford win 21 to 6 was not sexy enough. Their offense was not good enough. Their offense didn't put up enough points. They didn't perform well enough in this football game. Uh, they've, they've taken criticism for two weeks and typically 
under crystal ball, when we see the, an Oregon football program with time to prepare and on top of that, either a marquee game or going into a situation where there's been a lot of criticism about the program or a certain aspect of the program, the team usually comes out dialed in and ready to go and plays a relatively good football game. Like, they compete at a high level. And I'm expecting that on Saturday against California. Like, it wouldn't surprise me if all of a sudden, you know, Oregon's offense in the run game explodes. And we see them, you know, average five yards per carry and they score three touchdowns and they go over 200 yards, you know, 225, 250 yards rushing. And we walk away feeling like, wow, that was, that was a showing. That was an impressive showing by Oregon's offense. They figured things out. Like it would not surprise me if we see that just because of a past history of the Auburn game. Going into that game, it was can Oregon's you know offense move the ball against Auburn, it, and can they do it without Dylan Mitchell? Can can they play in the big game? Can the bigger scope of that of that game was they don't play very well on the road and they don't play very well in big games. How are they going to look in this one? And I think, you know, look, they, they had the lead until the last nine seconds of that football game. They went toe-to-toe with the seventh-best team in the country who's undefeated and is, you know, each each week generating more and more discussion as possible, you know, college football playoff contender in Auburn. Uh, Stanford, you know, all all year they had to hear about the, the choke job at Autzen in 2018, and they went down in, this year, and and – they manhandled the Stanford Cardinal. Yep. And, you know, against Washington last year, they went, you know, they talked, it was a ton of talk about two years in a row, the Huskies were the better program and, you know, the 72 to 10 or whatever the score was and 72 to 14. And, you know, and then the, the following year up at UW, they could just hardly even move the football and Herbert played an unbelievable game. The defense was lights out and, and they won the football game. So like these, this game feels a lot like that, where like there's a ton of attention on the program, a ton of criticism on the program, and you know when th- those things happen, Oregon usually kind of rises up and, and plays a good game. The third question is a suggestion for the running game. So Matt, this is for you to start. Are we ready to see a running back only formation? There's the Wildcat and the Angry Beaver, so why not the Mad Duck? When we need a yard or less, Smash Mouth football, double tight end, and Cyrus alone in the backfield. He says, P.S. Yes, on Herbert running at least one time per game. It's almost like Midtown was listening to the podcast as we were talking uh, with that last suggestion there with Herbert running one time a game. But, Matt, what do you think about possibly kind of the wildcat formation with maybe Cyrus or, or CJ or somebody in the backfield? Are you buying I that? I don't like it. Yeah, I don't either. <laughs> I, I mean, thanks for the question, but I, that's one of those where I don't like it. If they had like a DeAnthony Thomas um, or – a, a Braylon Addison or a, a, a Josh Huff at the receiver position, then sure, I, I could kind of see that. But I don't with the, the guys that Oregon has at running back, I don't see a running back only formation, you know, working out on a consistent basis. Like, okay, maybe they they throw it out there twice in a game and it works, but after that, once teams kind of get some film on it, I. I don't see the success rate being very high. 
What about Sean Dollars back there? I think when he committed, there was he said something about possibly playing some wildcat quarterback. I don't know. I'm just I'm just thinking off my head about personnel wise because I I kind of agree with what you're saying. Cyrus actually would make more sense to me than CJ or Travis Dye or Darian Felix just in terms of the size and athletic ability. I my, I, I just think there's a lot of things that can go wrong when somebody who's not used to playing the position, playing the position. And if you're putting in in a situation where you take Justin Herbert off right. the field on a fourth and one, and it's your best situation, player. I would say, don't do that. And, uh, you know, maybe situationally there will be times where it, it makes sense to do that, but I would just, my, 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 my I'm a similar to you in terms of if you had the perfect personnel, you find a way to do it. Like if Oregon had, a wide receiver who was a converted quarterback or something like that, and he was a good runner, or they even had a backup quarterback that they would just bring in uh, that was a really good runner. And Tyler Shuck's a good athlete, but I don't think you want to potentially put him out there. That's not like what he does necessarily. Um, I would be okay with it. I, I just think from a personnel perspective, it's weird. I like the idea of just getting creative in general. Um, I'd rather see more like we saw it if you watched Monday Night Football um, earlier this week. The the Steelers were you know trying to figure out ways to kind of just get unique and move the football, and they did a ton of stuff where you know they they'd send James Conner or another running back or even you know one of their their faster receivers and send the guy on a sweep, and as he crosses the quarterback's face, uh, Mason Rudolph kind of shuttle past the ball to the running back and it's a technically it's a pass but it's essentially a fly sweep you know i'd like to see that stuff you know bring guys in motion and you know run them behind the 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 pistol maybe or wherever the running back is positioned and you know all of a sudden you've got a, a receiver going into the flat on the left and you've got a running back going to the flat on the right and you've got other receivers doing some other things downfield you know just Creating some some mismatches and creating some confusion and you know a lot of movement and forcing the defense to have to react and think and when you do that that pauses guy that makes guys pause and then that opens up you know passing lanes essentially I I mean I'm with you get creative and and maybe this is the better overlaying question of I don't like the wildcat figure out something else to to add some creativity to the play calling just in the essence of forcing the defense to react and see stuff that they don't normally see. All right. And this fourth question might be perfect for you as well from at Matt Syker. Would Oregon benefit if they use Jalen red at running back or out of the backfield? He's electric. Um, that kind of gets to what you're saying there, right? About having maybe a receiver come in motion and, and red is somebody who, I know his yards per catch is not very high, but that's in part because every one of those passes basically is at the line of scrimmage or three to four yards past the line of scrimmage. You know, he's averaging nine yards per catch, but his ability to make plays after the catch is, is really what makes him, uh, you know, a valuable part of this offense. And I think getting him the ball in space and letting his speed and his ability to make defenders miss, um, would be a beneficial Direction to go. Um, I, I think that kind of aligns with what you're saying, right, Matt? In terms of just you get the ball to other people in space, maybe he comes around in a jet sweep and you flip it to him. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, I think it's it's just great. I don't know if I would use Jalen Red at running back full time, 
Yeah, no, but I wouldn't. I mean, we've we've seen him we've seen him get some carries on some some fly sweeps. Uh, you know, his first two years at Oregon. You know, I, I wouldn't mind that happening once or twice a game and 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 seeing what happens. I wouldn't mind uh, just. And this, and this is what's the difficult aspect of it. I mean, maybe they do have all this stuff and they just can't run it because of the lack of personnel in, in terms of bodies. Like, you know, maybe the injuries to Will Hoyt and to Waters and obviously to, to Jawan Johnson and Brendan Schooler and Micah Pittman, maybe the, the lack of bodies has, has kind of shrunk the available playbook down to what we've seen. And as guys get back, Maybe the options of of doing all this stuff mm-hmm. increases because of they have more guys. They can do more things. They can run plays that that are deeper downfield and thus require guys to run harder for longer periods of time. Like like they're not machines. You know, and, and as crazy as it sounds, like if you send guys deep three or four plays in a row, they're going to get tired and they're going to have to come off. And right now, Oregon only has four receivers, six if you count. Daywood Davis and, and Spencer Webb. And those are two guys that didn't start fall camp at the receiver position. So maybe getting guys back opens up the playbook and we see this, this type of creativity that people are, are asking to see or the, or maybe simply just taking more deep shots. Maybe, you know, being more aggressive could, could become an available option because Oregon has more options at the receiver position. A little bit of context about Jalen Red running the football. 12 carries for 85 yards and two touchdowns as a freshman and a sophomore um, in run situations. So there is a little bit of history there. And he has averaged about seven yards um, per touch in those scenarios. So maybe that's a well we'll see them go back to. I think he has one carry for one yard this year. So I haven't really tried it very much this season. All right, let's take a quick break. Let's hear from our sponsors. And you're listening to the Ots and Audibles Mailbag with Eric Scopel and myself, Matt Brain. Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry, built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. And right now, your local Toyota dealer has more vehicles in stock and is making delivery on new vehicles almost every day. So visit your local Toyota dealer. And check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Offers end April 1st. Toyota, let's go places. All right, welcome back to the Ots and Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Prame. Eric Scopel is with me. Uh, Mailbag Wednesday, which means we answer the best questions from you, the Duck fan. 
on Oregon athletics. And this week it's, I don't think it's a surprise, but it's heavy focus on football and in particular Oregon's run game and also, uh, preparing for Cal. Eric, you've got four more questions, right? I do. Question number five comes from at Robbie Parness. I know it's a ways down the road, but with California schools potentially being able to pitch an athlete on making money off their own likeness with the new law, what could the recruiting repercussions be for U of O and other Pac-12 schools? Would this be a big advantage for California schools? I think that's a really interesting question. Um, I think the law goes into place in 2023. Yeah. So there, there is some time to possibly figure that out. Um, I would, I'm sure USC though is already pitching LA kids on, Hey, stick around here. Maybe, you know, you could make an extra 10 to 20 K a year or over your career. I mean, I think the hard thing to figure out is like, what, what did, what do these kids value? And like, right. how much, how much can the schools cater towards benefiting them? Right. Like, can they, like, does this have to be all, I don't know. It'll be very interesting to see what that involvement is, but I think it can't hurt. Right. I just, I don't think it can be a negative for these schools. Yeah, I mean, I, I, eventually every school will have this option. I mean, the Agreed. NCAA already came out and they released a statement shortly thereafter and they kind of acknowledged that, you know, change is needed. And it was kind of one of those things where it was like they were so against it, so against it, so against it. And then when it passed, they kind of cha- completely changed and, you know, seemed to be open <laughs> to the idea and are, you know, they're just pandering. They're just, hey, we want to swoop in. And we want to act like we were part of the solution when, when we were part of the issue and, you know, trying to take over and, and, you know, control the narrative a little bit. But that being said, like, sure, if, if by 2023 Oregon or other states don't have this ability, yeah, like, you know, there's going to be some guys that probably land at USC or UCLA or Cal or Stanford or San Diego State, you know, what have you, at San Jose State that have the ability to say like, hey, come to or come to come to UCLA, and if you come here, we've got a, a car dealership that's willing to pay you ten thousand dollars a month for you to you know to go on and you know be the spokesperson for the, you know, the official ride of UCLA football or UCLA athletics. Like we, we can get you 10 grand a month that, you know, that's $120,000 a year. You know, and we think you're going to be here for three years and you know, that, that type of stuff happens, you know, and, and, and it's, it's going to happen. And, and eventually, I mean, is it going to be that amount of money? I don't know. Maybe I'm, grossly overestimating or maybe I'm grossly underestimating it. I don't know. But at the same time, people also have to realize that these businesses and these boosters and these schools like that have donors that are going to be willing to do this, those people, they still need to be profitable. They still need to make money. The the third string left tackle, he's not all of a sudden going to be getting $50,000 a year to go to USC off likes and images sponsorships because a car dealership can't be paying fifty thousand for a guy that's not going to play, a, <laughs> you know, a, a, a snap right. his first year or two years on on campus, and then because that means the second string guy is probably going to make seventy five, and then the th- and the first string guy he'll probably be getting a hundred thousand dollars, you know, like 
but these businesses just all of a sudden aren't going to be, you know, unlimited money pits. Like th- those places still need to make money. Or maybe there's just, you know, some philanthropy out there that, you know, these guys really love USC and they've got a hundred million dollars and they don't care if in 10 years they have $10 million left in the bank, but USC has won 10 championships. And there's also the possibility that the businesses are not as involved in this and that these are money they make off of being on Instagram. You know what I mean? Right. Like, like of these, of just like weird way. I mean, there's so many weird ways that these guys can make money off of just being celebrities and you're seeing it with, and I, I guess you, these people are paid by, like you, you like social influ, you know, influencers on social networking sites, right? Those guys make a full living and make it looks like a pretty decent living based upon just basically being attractive people that people want to follow their lives. I don't quite get it, but I think there's a there are certainly people that would do the same thing with college athletes. And look, and I I, I think athletes should get paid. Me too, in yeah. some capacity. And I I said this on Twitter, um, or. Once these bills come into place and these laws get passed and they go into effect, it's going to be a mess mm-hmm. early on because we've never done this before. We don't, you know, no one's gone down this path before at the college level and it's going to be a mess and there's not going to be a unified, you know, more than likely there's not going to be a unified rules and things are going to be herky jerky and it's going to be choppy waters. But eventually things are going to get figured out and a solution that makes sense for all parties involved for the most part will probably present itself at some point. And college football and college athletics will, will continue to go on because look right now, like everyone says, Oh, well, Alabama, Clemson, Ohio <coughs> state, Oklahoma, Georgia, they're all going to get the best players. Guess what? They already are like, Life will go on and it will look a little bit different, but eventually we'll find an adjustment and, and things will be, will be okay. That last, that last point, I saw a tweet that was about this that said that I think it was literally those five schools have had the best recruiting success. And guess what? Those are the five highest ranked programs right now in the AP and the coaches yeah. polls. So recruiting matters and you're right. I think it was like 55 out of 95 five stars went to five schools over the last four, like of players that are still in college football. So that tells you all you need to know about the current parity. It's not like we're in a thing right now where it's fully even and everyone's going everywhere. Uh, it's very much condensed to a certain handful of schools. And I don't necessarily think this likeness thing makes it any different. Maybe if, if anything else, maybe it evens the playing field a little bit because they have other, you know, let's stop pretend like everybody, you know, it's all like fair and even right now in terms of the financial implications. I mean, I think it's pretty clear that some of that stuff is going on. You're seeing it obviously with basketball. So certainly something that's going to be very interesting to follow now over the next couple of years because this sport and all sports at the collegiate level will be changing whether you like it or not over the next couple of years. So you can drag your feet and say it's unfair and you don't like it. But I think ultimately you're going to have to kind of just move on and accept sort of the direction it's going. And if it, Makes it so that you don't think the sport's unbearable to watch. That's unfortunate, but it's the direction of where it's going. I mean, all look right. at it like in Idaho, right? Like everyone's talking about how like all oh, USC, Alabama, like all these schools, like Boise, Boise State is the only Division One football program in the state of Idaho. Like, what's what's to say that that school can't go across the state and all of a sudden say, hey? You now, as a business or as a booster, 
have the ability where you could work with us to directly impact helping us land guys to come play football at Boise State. Yeah. Like, yeah. like you're not going to tell me that, that there's not going to be a, a ton of businesses in the state of Idaho and especially in, in the surrounding area of Boise that are diehard Boise State fans that are going to say, you mean – I, you know, my business could donate five thousand dollars a a month, and, and and pay a an athlete for his likeness and endorsement or his image or whatever, and that helps you guys get better you know better football players, which in turn you know I have high profile athletes at Boise that are that are promoting my business, which drives sales for me. Like that's gonna happen. And that yeah. goes to your point of maybe it levels the playing field. And eventually, like we said, this could benefit Oregon as well. We just, you know, I think there's just so much uncertainty about how all this is going to play out. But I, I, at some point, at some point, it's not going to just be California. I think Florida also is trying to now pass some legislation. Yeah. Um, I, think I think South that, Carolina is too. But at, at some point, this is going to, it's going to be an even playing field. It might be unfair. Like Matt said, there might be some real messiness for a couple of years, but. It'll all sort itself out. All right, sixth question. I like that question a lot, though, and that's a good topic to to keep talking about uh, as this stuff kind of continues to unfold. But sixth question from at Stephen Welch 822. At this point, who should we expect to redshirt or rather not redshirt this year? What is the current tally for games played amongst the freshmen? Well, I've got the information in front of us here. Kevin Wade, who also works with the site, has a uh, redshirt tracker. Um, there are a handful of guys that are very likely to redshirt this year. Triquez Bridges, Trayvon Mai, Kale Millen, uh, Jonah Tayuna, Isaac Townsend, J.R. Waters, Lance Wilhoyt, and Javon Wilson have basically all not played this season. I think Tayuna and Bridges have both played one game. Those guys, and I think Patrick Herbert, who I didn't mention there either, um, should also be mentioned. Uh, are guys who just, and, oh, and Sawobi Poti, uh, there's another one, are all guys that basically don't seem likely to play. And if you're only played one game to so this point of the, you know, the season, and that includes games against Nevada and Montana, um, I think it's pretty clear those guys are uh, are probably using the redshirt year this year. Maybe maybe things will change. Uh, maybe something will happen along the defensive line, and you'll need to see some more of these guys play. Maybe there will be um, – I mean, Will Hoyt and Waters are both injured right now. Maybe one of them comes back and plays a handful of games and, and, uses, and doesn't use his redshirt year. Um, but it seems pretty likely the guys I listed are going to redshirt. And then guys that are already at four games, which basically means if they play on Saturday, that's no longer an option. Josh Delgado, Jimon Eford, Mace Funa, Jamal Hill, DJ James, Camden Lewis, Kayvon Thibodeau, and Mikhail Wright are all at four games right now. So once they play on Saturday, those guys are no longer eligible to redshirt. Uh, Brandon Dorless and Keon Ware Hudson have three games played each. Sean Dollars and Christian Williams have two um, so Williams and Dollars are probably two guys that are kind of the most murky in terms of they've already played half the games. They could play uh, a couple or three more and, and then uh, not use their red shirt. They could also not play uh, the required number to get there. So that's kind of an idea of it. It looks like about seven or eight guys are at four games right now, meaning uh, you can pretty safely say they will not be using the red shirt year and right. a bunch of other guys. So um, that kind of does it in terms of that. I mean, I don't think – it's interesting looking through this list. I don't think there are that many surprises in terms of guys who uh, 
are either at the four games who are not at the four games. It kind of all makes sense. I think if I were to say a guy who maybe I'm surprised hasn't played more, um, that might be maybe Patrick Herbert, but the position group was so loaded at tight end that it just kind of, it didn't present itself. But for the most, I, I guess, you know, Jonah, Jonah Taoyunu is probably the one who you, you could have expected to play a little bit more, right, Matt? I mean, he's only played one game, uh, continues to be a reserve offensive tackle. Um, looks like he will be redshirting. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I was expecting him to play just because of uh, the depth in front of him. <laughs> Excuse me, all the experience along the offensive line and from a starting perspective and then the guys behind him. Um, I I do think Keon Ware and I think it's Brandon Dorless. Yeah, they have three games each. Yeah, I think those guys are going to play this year. Me too. Um, I I think they've kind of push themselves into that spot where, the, you know, they may only play seven or eight games, but they're going to play. Um, I think there's a fine line of how it's not worth playing a guy, you know, seven or eight snaps a game and he gets in seven or eight games. Like, that's not worth it. Like, redshirt the guy. You can find ways, unless, you know, it's a do-or-die situation and Oregon's you know, in a position where injuries have, have have popped up or or what have you, and they need to you know they need to play a guy to <coughs> excuse me to get a win and at the same time stay in the hunt for the playoff or stay in the hunt for the Rose Bowl. Like that's the only instance where you play a guy. But if you can get by in those two scenarios without playing dudes, like. Try and redshirt as many of them as you possibly can, just because. I mean, look at look at Diamante Lenore, look at Nick Pickett, look at Thomas Graham, Jalen Red, Johnny Johnson. Um, look at all these guys that are in their third years now at Oregon, and on Scott, how dominant they are, just simply because of experience. They've been able to, their bodies have matured and, you know, they've, they've gotten, they've gotten stronger and that comes with, you know, getting older. And so it's ideal where, you know, you've got to, the line that you have to cross get worthwhile of having a fifth year, you know, senior Limited role, limited production as a true freshman. Like, theoretically, Justin Herbert should be a redshirt junior right now. Yeah. Like, I don't know if we were expecting Herbert to be a, you know, a top five pick in the draft when he signed at Oregon. The idea was redshirt him, get him some time, bring him along, and then he'll compete for the starting job down the road. Like, no one was really expecting him, I, I don't think, to, to be this good that quickly. Now, this is in a case where it worked in Oregon's favor because he played as a true freshman and was legit and played as a true sophomore and was legit. And, you know, Oregon's going to get four years of, of starting games out of him. Uh, but had he redshirted, Oregon may have only gotten two, two years of, of, you know, or maybe three years of a starting experience from Herbert. There's no guarantee he would come back again for another year next season. But that's kind of what you have to go with. Like, 
is there going to be a value? I mean, I, I go back to um, like 2010, Drew Davis, the receiver. He was a senior that year. But in 2000, and I think it was 2007, he was a true freshman and and played hardly any any snaps outside of like one game. He hardly even played, and it's kind of like, why did he play? Because in 2010, he was a, a true senior. He was a you know one of the best receivers on the team, and in reality, you traded a a year of of eligibility for minimal impact when he could have redshirted and came back in 2011 and been this superstar receiver at Oregon because he would have been a redshirt senior. So that's that's kind of the fine line that you're you're having to, to to cross and debate within yourself as a program at Oregon of who do you play as true freshman and what are you going to get? What's the reward that you're going to get of burning an entire year for limited snaps? Seventh question comes from at Josh Harden four. It's not really a question. Dollars needs five touches per game. Change my mind. And this uh, goes right in with what I was just talking about. Like, yeah. like dollars. If if dollars redshirts this season, it, you have to decide: is dollars the team's best running back, or is he a, a top two running back on the team? I don't think he is yet. Yet he could get there, but I don't think he is there yet. And so, if he's not going to be a guy that you play. 40%, 30% of the time at the running back position, you're just throwing away a year for very, very minimal impact. And so redshirt him, create two years of separation between C.J. Verdell and Travis Dye and Cyrus Abilagio and Darian Felix. And when those guys move on, Dollars, if he's still in the program, has two years to be a starter. And... It, whereas if you wait, he's only got one because he's gone the year after that. And what I was going to say was in response to to Josh's question about, and it kind of follows in to what we're talking about here, but if you're not going to redshirt him, he should be getting five touches per game, right? Like, I mean, like you have to be maximizing his snap count if you are going to play him. And that's probably why maybe there's been some hesitancy in how much they want to utilize him at this point because – He's got two more games he can play and still redshirt. And I, by the way, I love this new rule. It, it's so, it's so great for player development because it gives these guys an option to kind of audition in game situations to play. So I would say if the, if it doesn't fully impact the game's outcome, right? Like, like if, if giving him, if you, you don't want to be diminishing your offense's output, offense's output, I should say, um, by playing a player that isn't ready to play. So if Sean Dollars isn't ready to play, you redshirt him. But if you think he can help you, then yeah, give him those five touches per game here for a couple of games and see what he can do. And if it's, I just think you, what you don't want to have happen is you don't want to be, you don't want to burn a guy like Sean Dollars redshirt year with snaps at the end of blowouts being the only time he plays. Yeah. You want to make sure you give him an opportunity to play in meaningful moments because otherwise it's a waste because the out, because the outcome of the game has already been determined. Playing him doesn't affect it. So why are you using a full year of eligibility for that purpose? Maybe he likes the opportunity to go out there and run in, in, in games that, you know, in moments that don't really matter where the team's up a certain number of points. Maybe that's something he appreciates the snaps, but that's that balance. And in terms of just the general tenor here of he, dollars needs five touches per game. I'm not 
fully opposed to that idea, but I also need to see what that looks like a little bit more, you know, and, and maybe that's the, maybe that's the reason, that's the argument for playing dollars is that we don't, we don't know what he provides and this yeah. run game right now isn't very good. And Sean Dollar is getting five touches per game. Maybe suddenly the run game gets better, but there is so much uncertainty with what that role and that impact could have. And again, you already have four older running backs who have performed adequately at times during their career. Obviously right now, this is not like the height of really anybody's, Career success-wise, running the football, but I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't mind seeing against Cal on Saturday. Give Sean Dollars the ball five times. Let's see what he does. Just because, why not? I don't know. That's. I, I think well, at this point you're kind of two games, right? Yeah. So you you have a little bit of wiggle room. But you have two games where you can figure out what he, you know, what he can do. I think one of those is going to be against Oregon State. Like that's going to be an opportunity. But at the same time, you don't want to wait and exactly. wait and wait for Oregon State to show up and not have played him, and then Oregon State, for whatever reason, turns into a close game, and now you don't have it. So I, I think you take if, – if another situation presents itself where you can get him in the game before Oregon State, you do it. And you probably do it in the next you know three or four weeks if you can. I don't know if that opportunity is going to be there. But – you try and you try and play him, and and see what he can do. And if and if he's progressed enough, then you get to the point where all right, let's play him one more. And if he continues to progress, then it, then the discussion becomes: do we keep playing him, or, or or do we shut him down? I think your your period to maybe go and try some different thing. Your trial period is these next two games against Cal and Colorado. Not to be disrespectful to these opponents, but. You want to be, you want to know everything you can do almost going into that Washington game. Like you, you don't want to be going into that game going, oh, let's try this. We don't know if it'll work, but let's try. I think you want to go into those games feeling pretty confident about what your game plan is and what you're trying. And if there are any new wrinkles that you know that those wrinkles at least have some success rate historically. Um, which is why I think if you are going to make dollars a part of the run game and, and utilize him a little bit more, I would argue it wouldn't be a bad thing to start doing it this week against Cal and then maybe the following week against Colorado as well, just to see what you have there. And again, if it, if it turns out he could not cut out for it, I think a Cal defense would, te- would test him pretty well. It's going to be the best defense he's faced at the college level for sure. Then you scrap the whole thing and you go, okay, well, he's not ready right now. But if it goes and he goes out there and he breaks off a couple big runs like we saw him do, against Montana, then, hey, maybe maybe you do have something you want to continue to to kind of work on there. All right, eighth question from at Vault Mega. If our running game stays completely the same from here on out, how many games will we lose this year? So we're ending the podcast on a real positive question. <laughs> um, well, if they can't run the football, it's hard to beat most teams. I, I think the game at Washington, you're going to need to be able to run the football. Yep. I think USC, you probably need to be able to run the football. I think Arizona State, you probably need to be able to run the football. So I think if you can't run the football efficiently in either of those games, that's three losses right there. And frankly, you go up against a defense like Cal, uh, not being able to run the football this weekend, I don't know if you can rely entirely on throwing the ball to win this game because Cal's got a really good secondary. And if you're pass heavy, that might not be the right secondary to go against. So... Uh, again, it's kind of a dark question to end the show on, but like, I, I'd say three or four games maybe, but I also would say that like, I don't expect it's going to be a bad, bad run game. And Oregon has lost one game to date 
And I don't necessarily think that game was lost because of the team's inability to run the football. I think that game against Auburn was lost for a, a number of reasons, but not primarily. It's the lack of run game success. So Oregon plays eight games left on the, <coughs> excuse me, on the schedule. And five of those games are against the worst five teams in the conference for rushing yards allowed per carry. Um, so I, they're not, you know, but then on the same, same side, uh, Arizona State is, I think, second. And then, uh, Stanford, or California is fourth. And Washington is sixth, I believe. So you're playing, you know, three of the teams in the upper half, uh, in, in the conference. But then you, you look at it from a total defense yards per play allowed, things get really interesting for Oregon because, they still have to play Arizona State, who's second in the conference. So we should know Oregon is first. Cal is third in the conference in yards per play allowed on defense. Washington is fourth. USC is sixth. So they still have to play four of the top six defenses in the conference from a yards per play allowed perspective. One of those other two teams that aren't included is yourself. And then the 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 fifth the sixth team is Utah. They're fifth. You might play them in the in the Pac-12 championship game. So I I think the issue isn't really can Oregon run the football. It's more so okay. So you're not going to average 150 yards a game on the ground. How do you make up that lack of production through the air? Can Oregon figure out ways to do that? You know, can can the passing game? mask the deficiencies of of the run game. That's going to be the question I think going forward. And you know, you look, you don't have a balance. You're not going to beat Washington on the road, I don't think. And you know, Arizona State's going to be a very difficult game as well. Yeah, I, I, my just general answer on this is I don't think Oregon loses a game because it can't run the football unless it's just literally cannot gain a yard. Right. But you, like you said, you have to be able to find a way against some of these really good defenses to move the ball effectively. And you're handcuffed a little bit if the opponent doesn't respect your ability to run the football, right? Like if, if, yep. if Washington goes, oh, they can't run the football, and then they change what they're doing schematically to defend the pass a little differently, that impacts your ability to have success throwing the football. So I do think there is a push-pull there. Um, I'm with you in just in terms of, like, you face some of these top-tier defenses, and if you just aren't markedly better or even a little bit better running the football against those teams – it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough. I mean, look, like they're not going to lose to Colorado. They're not going to lose to Oregon State. They're not going to lose to Arizona. Like I, I feel very confident in those three games, whether they run the ball or not. Like I just do. Washington State's a toss-up. I think you, you feel confident, but you also understand the Cougars have won that game four games in a row. They've always given Oregon problems. USC is still USC. You know, they still have good players. It's on the road. And then, you know, Washington is, is Washington. You know, they've got good coaching. They've got good players and it's a road game and it's a rivalry game. So yeah, there's games on the schedule, but there are games that you can get away with it without being able to run the football. But there's certainly a couple on the schedule, three or four that you can't afford to be able to, you know, be pass heavy. And, and expect to win every single one of them. I agree. I agree. I, there has to be some balance, and and that's what this bye week is about. Mario Cristobal has said it now 
you know, a couple of times, but they need to, you know, figure some things out, come back. And I do think, like you said earlier in the show, Matt, that we're going to see the run game perform at a higher level. I think the offensive line is too good. I think the running backs have the talent to be better than what we've seen. And I think I'm not going to make a bold prediction on like the number of yards, but I think we're going to come away on Saturday when we're doing our, our post game podcast talking about, Hey, it wasn't necessarily perfect, but the run game took a step today, and and that'll be after Oregon beats Cal pretty handily. All right, and that's going to do it for us uh, here on the Austin Audible's podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks to those who submitted, and if we didn't r- pull off your question off the Internet, uh, keep sending them to us. We'll, we'll get to it eventually. So thank you for listening. Thank you for sending them in. And as always, for Eric Scopel and myself, Matt Prem, we'll talk to you later. Adios, amigos. Celebrate and save at Ashley's Anniversary Sale with Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep Mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases and shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval, no minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details.